Well, it's great to see you, Providence, and uh, for all the individuals who make up Providence. So good to see your face this morning. If you're a guest with us uh, here, uh, welcome. We're really, really glad that you have joined us. Uh, we really do uh, think it's an honor uh, for you to come and to worship the Lord Jesus with us, or if you don't know him, uh, Savior and Lord, just to come and learn more about him. But we really are glad you're here. I want to ask you to look with me to the first chapter of Ephesians. If you uh, have a Bible, if you don't, there should be one in a a chair near you uh, there at the bottom. And if you don't have one at home, uh, we would love for you to take that home as a gift. Uh, Here at Providence, we love the Bible, and it's because it's the Bible that points us to Jesus. And Jesus said in Matthew 7, 24, he says, Anyone who hears these words of mine and obeys them is like a wise man who built his house on rock. And for you and for me, as we um, look at uh, all the different paths in life, there's a proverb that says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. So many people are building their life on on, uh, so many different assumptions. And what the Bible says is there's only one creator of the universe, and there's only one savior. And this savior, this creator, he came to earth he spoke words that were true, that, that, that were in full alignment with how he created us to live our life, to think, to be. And if we'll build our life upon what he has written in this book, he says that it's like us building our life, our house upon rocks, sturdy foundation. So uh, as I often uh, encourage us as a body, let's lean in. Let's lean into everything that God has for us here in Ephesians. And so I want to ask you if you would, let's bow and let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your kindness to us. God, even as we look out into the world, we see signs that we read about in Matthew 24. God, we do not know how much time we have left here on the earth. It may be hundreds and thousands of years, it may be tomorrow. But God, what we do pray is that while we are here, and as the next generation is here, and the next generation is here, however long there are generations here, we pray, God, that there would be a growing remnant of people on the earth that would, that would worship you, that would exalt you, that would adore you. And that's the desire of our life. We come to you, we come to your word, and while we take our turn. Uh, here on this earth, we want to honor you with our life. We want to honor you with our dreams, our aspirations, our relationships, our responsibilities, our talents and gifts, our treasures, everything that we have while we're here. We know that it's borrowed. You're the owner of everything. And apart from you, there is no God. And you are eternal from everlasting to everlasting. And so, God, we humbly take our place at your feet today. It's your word. And pray that you would help us to understand it, to believe it, to apply it to our life. And we do pray for the world. We pray for the world and all of its confusion and all of its heartache and all of its brokenness. As we hear of rumors and wars, we hear of earthquakes and floods and storms and violence. And the world is so desperately in need of the culmination of redemption. We look forward to it and ask that you would, you would go before those in the world today that are deeply hurting and you would unite them to your son, Jesus Christ. So we pray for even 
our missionaries and who are missionaries around the world. We pray for the speed of the gospel. Even while we are meeting here in this moment, we pray, God, for people, for church planners, for pastors, for Bible translators all around the world. God, that you would give them favor and that your name would go and be glorified to the ends of the earth. Would you use this moment in our lives, in this room, and in these rooms, God, to contribute to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in 2010, uh, Disney uh, gave us the movie Secretariat, right, which was about that legendary racehorse who in 1973 uh, won pretty much everything. He won the Derby. Uh, he won the Preakness. And um, perhaps the, the most significant thing that we can recall about Secretariat um, uh, actually took place in the last of these three significant races in 1973 when he won by 31 lengths. And, and uh, um, there on the back stretch, uh, there was, there was a... Um, um, uh, a, a uh, man, his name is uh, Chick Anderson, who was the announcer. And his um, secretariat and uh, one other horse started out really, really fast, faster than any uh, horse had ever started out. In fact, throughout every quarter of mile, he actually ran it faster. Um, and on the back stretch, the um, second place horse, uh, who actually started in the lead, uh, he starts falling back, and suddenly Secretariat just starts expanding his lead and expanding his lead. And Chick Anderson, he famously says at that point, Secretariat is widening now. He's moving like a tremendous machine. And in the end, he won by a record uh, 31 lengths uh, at the Belmont Stakes. And why I tell you that is because that idea of he's running like a tremendous machine reminds me of Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, where he rattles off a 202-word Greek sentence, which was how the letter, the New Testament, was first written. And he rattles off 202 words without pausing for a period until the end. He's so overwhelmed with the grace of God in his life, he's so overwhelmed with the grace of God that what God has made available in every single one of our lives that Paul literally writes about God's blessing like a tremendous machine. He's like each stride of secretariat was over 24 feet long. And this is what Paul is doing. He is literally just chewing up theological ground that is so significant, election and predestination and calling and blessing and forgiveness and redemption. And he literally just is chewing up enormous ideas about who God is and what God has done, like a, like a tremendous machine. And last week we looked at verses 3 through 6. We want to look at verse 7 through 10 today, which is really highlighting the son's role. And then next week we'll look at verse 11 to 14, which is really the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. But because it's one sentence in all three weeks, I want to read all Uh, of this amazing sentence. So starting in verse three, he says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And then he writes a period. I just love how he cannot move past without explaining and stacking expression upon expression. I think at the end, he probably hit period and looked back and, he didn't have a computer that could go back in, and so he would, have to, he would have to go back. And if he wanted to add periods, he'd have to add capital letters, and it would just mess up his whole letter. And so he just says, we're just going to go with that. It's a beautiful thing, but it's even more beautiful than what he's trying to communicate. Now, what I want you to see in this, right, there's really only two applications that the text lends itself directly to our life. Now, as we go through, we're looking at a few other applications. But if you just look at the words, the only thing he tells us to do is either what he's done or what God says that he did all this so that we would do. And that is worship. It's literally to sing. He starts says, blessed be. In other words, he's just saying, God, you did all of this. And on three different occasions, it actually tells us why God did this in our life. He says, to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glorious grace. Three different occasions this refrain is placed within the song. In other words, God and Paul want the result of our life after reading and understanding what is written here to be that we would sing. Literally, that we would sing. And not just that we would sing songs, but literally we would sing with our life that That our very life, our relationships, everything about us would be the overflow of gratitude for what God has done for us. So we looked at a few things that the Father intentionally did in our life last week in verses 3 through 6. Let's look at what the Son does. The first is this, is Christ has redeemed us by his blood. Now, you have to remember that every one of these blessings is made available only through Jesus. But what I want to do here is to show you the three things that it says that Jesus said, this is my part of the pie. This is what I'm going to provide for them. The very first is that he has redeemed us by his blood. It says in him. Now to make sure we know who the in him is, if you look at the end of verse 6, it says in the beloved. When Jesus was on the earth, he was baptized. There was a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son. So when he's talking here and he says, in the beloved, who he's talking about is in Jesus Christ. And then verse 7 starts, in him, in the beloved Son of God, we have redemption. Now, if I were to say to you, my tire 
is now fixed. And I give you no other context, no other story. I just said, my tire is fixed. You would connect the dots in your own heart because the word fixed implies something was once wrong and now it's no longer wrong. You would connect the dots and assume that my tire had been flat or there was something wrong with it. If I told you that I, have, I had been rescued by the fireman, you would naturally connect the dots and assume that at some point in time I was in peril. I was, I was in danger. There was risk involved. You see, Paul doesn't give us very much context when he says the words, we have been redeemed in Christ. We have redemption. But he intends for us to fill in that gap knowing what redemption is. You see, when he writes, we have redemption, we're supposed to look back and think about the cage in which we were all trapped. Because redemption literally means to be set free because someone else paid a price of ransom in order to let us go. And Paul doesn't talk a whole lot about the prison that we were in. He just affirms that we have been released, but nobody is ever excited about being released unless they're aware and remembering that at one time they were imprisoned. At one time, we were literally in a cage that we could not get out of. You see, the Bible says when we sinned against God, that we incurred a debt that we could not pay. There had to be a payment and it had to be a righteous payment. But the problem is we had all sinned, which is why we needed a payment. And so nothing that we could do, we couldn't stack up enough righteousness in our life to counteract the fact that we were no longer perfect. We were no longer perfectly righteous. So we had a debt before a holy God that we could not pay. And what the Bible says is as a result of that, we became slaves, slaves to sin. What that means is that when sin called our name, we were like a puppy dog that says, I'm ready. I'm ready. Let's do this. We were slaves to death. Death calls our name and we die. There's no fighting that. We were imprisoned by death. We were imprisoned by sin. We were imprisoned in fear and shame and regret. Like birds locked in a cage, we were all trapped. And so Christ did what we could not do. And it says that he paid our debt through his blood. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 says, Jesus loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. The word blood expresses the price that Jesus paid so briefly and succinctly that it's easy to pass over the anguish and the shame and the separation and the isolation and the guilt and the struggle and the tears and the injustice that Jesus endured in order to free us from that cage. And that's exactly what he did. And amazingly, the Bible says that when we trust Jesus Christ in his righteousness, he takes our sin, he credits his righteousness to our account, and then he, just like this picture, he opens up the cage to set us free. The door has been opened. And so when Paul says, 
you look at this picture, right? And we were once in there. That's our feather in there, okay? And when he says, we have been redeemed, what he says is we were at one time in a cage awaiting death and eternal wrath. And yet Jesus, because of his love for us, he came and he rescued us by paying our ransom in order to open up the door. So what do we do because this is true? I think the first application is for those in the room who have never trusted Christ. And that is what exhorts you to look to Jesus and trust in him. To look to Jesus and trust in him. We as a body invite you to do what many of us have done a long time ago. And that is to stop trusting in your righteousness. Stop assuming that you're going to be able to counteract your imperfection by a few good works before a holy God. And instead of banking on your accomplishments and your goodness, which the Bible says are nil, to trust in his provision of his son. Literally, A, B, C. A, admit. Admit that you're a sinner. B is believe. Believe in Jesus Christ, his righteousness, his death, his resurrection for you. And third, to confess him as Lord. To acknowledge his place in your life as Lord, as master. The Bible says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, it says we'll be saved. As a body, we encourage you today to be redeemed, to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And the second application for this point is for those of us who already have trusted Christ. And that is, let's look to redemption and praise him. Let's look back regularly to this act of redemption, this blood payment, and praise him for it. You see, here at the Frost family, we have a dog. His name is Champ. And Champ sleeps in a crate at night. The door gets shut every night. And he doesn't moan and groan because we let him in at the very end. He just lays down. He falls asleep. And normally, normally there's just a few minutes. He starts hearing the house stir in the morning. But it's interesting is every single morning as the door opens, he is reminded of his liberty. He darts out of that door. And his tail is wagging. And his tongue's hanging out. And he's so excited. And he just wants to be petted. He loves water. And he's just, he's just, he's just, he's just enjoying life at that moment. He's so grateful the door has been opened. But you see, God doesn't put us back in the cage every night and let us out in the morning. And so you and I have the possibility that because we've been freed forever, that we're not going to have that regular reminder of being liberated and set free. And our hearts can forget the thrill. Amnesia spiritually can muzzle our praise. And so if we're going to be a people who respond rightly to what we have received in redemption through Jesus. We're going to have to regularly do specific things, not only for ourselves, but for each other. We're going to need to read the gospel and be reminded of redemption regularly. We're going to need to sing about redemption regularly. We're going to need to rehearse the gospel to ourselves regularly, but not only to ourselves. We're going to need to do this with our kids. We're going to need to sit them down And talk about Jesus dying and rising from the dead again. And when they say, Dad, I already know this. You say, I know you already know this, but I do not want you to lose the thrill. This is why we have life groups. 
There's a lot of things that we say that when we get in these smaller groups and we pray for one another and we encourage one another and we love one another and we help one another physically when people have need. But if there is one thing that life groups are supposed to do, it is to help each other be amazed again at what Jesus has done for us. To not lose heart as we're going through a broken world because we look back and we remember afresh that we have been liberated. You see, why we sing every single week is because we walk in these doors and many of us on any given Sunday are not ready to sing. We're not thrilled sometimes at 8.55 at what took place 2,000 years ago. And so we sing these songs and And we think these and we read this and we talk about this. Some of us are thinking, man, you know, like David used to do this all the time. And now Brian's doing the same thing. Like they're never going to get over this gospel thing. They just keep bringing it up. That's right. Until I'm dead or you fire me. This is what we're going to do, right? We're going to talk about what Jesus has done for us so that we can be amazed Christ has redeemed us by his blood. The second thing we see is Christ has forgiven us by his grace. Now, if you even look at the wording, he he says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. One happens with the other. And so it's so closely tied to redemption that forgiveness may not be a separate thing. It's just something that's so amazing we want to talk about it. We've been forgiven of our trespasses. Now, what is a trespass? It means to cross the line. In other words, God is, looks around at all the sin in the world and he wants us to make sure that we know what's sin and what's righteousness. And so he puts a sign over and he says, hey, this is, this is wet paint, don't touch. Okay, and every single person in the world, you look at our hands and every one of us, you look at our conscience, you look at our heart, you look at our mind, you look at our lives and we all have paint on our hands as proof that we did not believe God's good intentions and we all touched the wall. We trespassed, we crossed the line. This is what it means he forgave our trespasses. But also notice the word forgive. Sometimes we use the word forgive. We don't really know what it means. We assume it means, well, we make things right, right? I forgave them, I let go of it, I... We don't really know. The word forgive literally means send away. Send away. And sometimes a picture really helps to anchor this idea in our heart. And so God gave us an entire picture book called the Old Testament that was pointing to spiritual realities that would come. One of the most holy days, in fact, it was the most holy day, was the Day of Atonement. Happened one day a year for the whole nation of Israel. They would all gather and they, they, they came specifically to deal with a sin problem every year. The sin problem of their lives. And so they would come and a high priest, there would be two goats. Unblemished. Wasn't the worst goat they could find. Say, well, no one wants this goat. Let's go ahead and give this one. No, it was the best. It was an unblemished lamb. A picture of the kind of person that would be required, unblemished spiritually, morally, to save us from our sin. The first goat would be killed, sacrificed, in order to make a payment for sin, a substitutionary payment. It was an atonement, it was a covering, and so the high priest would literally cut the throat, sprinkle blood on the altar, 
the animal would be placed, it would be burned to forgive sin. But then there was another goat. The second goat wasn't killed. Instead, the second goat, the scapegoat, what would take place is the high priest would come and he would put his hands on the goat's head. Symbolically to confess and to appropriate all the sins of the nation upon this goat. And then what they would do is they would take this goat and they would take it away out, of, out into the wilderness so far away that it would be impossible for that goat to find its way back to the people. And it was symbolic of God was not only atoning and sacrificing for sin, but he was taking sin as far away as possible. You see, these animals, they serve the people much like a life raft serves an ocean cruiser. If an ocean cruise line is going to sink, and they know it's going to sink, there's a bunch of life rafts. So what happens is they lower the people in the life rafts, and then they're there. Now, life rafts are not meant to live in. They're not meant even to travel in. And so you don't set up residency and governments inside life rafts. You wait until another ocean liner, a rescue ship with an engine, can come and rescue you. And this is the portrait. This is everything about the Old Testament. It was the life raft waiting for the better ship, the rescue ship that was Jesus Christ. So when Jesus came, his act in life was to do two things. It was to do just what those two goats symbolically were pointing that he would do. He would give his life as a sacrifice for sin, but he would also take our sins so far away from us that it could never revisit us, that that, that guilt, that that shame, that that... He would take it as far away as possible. In fact, Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And Paul says here that Jesus did all this according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. You see, God does not give us subsistence forgiveness that will barely cover our sins if we're careful not to overdo. Romans 5.20 says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. What this means is you and I cannot sin beyond God's grace. It's an amazing thing that you can't sin to the 41st time. And he goes, you know, I told you only 40. His grace always keeps Pushing. And it's because he lavishes it and it's because he's rich in grace. The rich people that we know of on the earth, they're all paupers in compared to the richness of God when it comes to everything he has, including grace. It can never be exhausted. So what do we do with this? This idea, if it's true that Christ has forgiven us by his grace, then what's our response to that? As I was praying, I actually had a hard time. What's the best way for us to apply? And as I think about our body, and I think about the people in our body that your pastors, that we meet with and talk with, and there's a problem. There's a problem in our heart, in many of our hearts at Providence, that I want to address right now in this application. And this is the application. Let's accept ourselves as forgiven in Christ. I want you to think about what it says there. Accept ourselves as forgiven in Christ. Many of us see the promises of God and yet do not look into the mirror and allow ourselves to live as though we are forgiven. 
You see, if you've trusted Jesus Christ and confessed your sin to him, then you are forgiven. God says it this way. 1 John 1, 9, he says, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive you of your sin. He will forgive you of your sin. He'll take away all your transgressions, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so to live otherwise, listen to this, it's not humility. It's the deepest form of arrogance. Actually placing ourself as the supreme authority over Jesus' authority. It's to say Jesus is the judge who says you are now forgiven, you're innocent. But there's another judge with my last name that disagrees. And so I'm going to listen to that judge. That is belittling to the blood of Jesus Christ. Assuming that we would need to help him out by further punishing ourselves, by, by, by adding, by contributing some good works to his works in order to be forgiven of our sin. You see, this is shaming to our Savior to say, I understand that you say that I am forgiven, but I'm going to live as though you're wrong. And I'm going to keep beating myself up. I'm going to keep shaming myself. I'm going to keep assuming that the call to go or the call to serve can't be for me because of my past. Oftentimes it turns the page from punishing ourselves to, well, maybe it's so much grace, it's just too much for me to absorb, so I just need to repay it somehow. I need to contribute somehow. Just to put it really simple, I would say this. Believe in Jesus and then believe Jesus. Believe in him as the Savior who redeems us and forgives us of our sin, and then believe him when he says, you are forgiven. You see, I would encourage you to receive the free gift of God's grace and then respond out of that fullness. Do you remember the woman in Luke chapter 7 who poured that jar of ointment over Jesus? The Pharisees who never looked to Jesus for forgiveness, they grumbled because of the waste of that sacrifice. So Jesus begins to speak and he interprets her sacrifice as an overflow of realizing that she had been forgiven. You see, she did not sacrifice to be accepted. She sacrificed because she was accepted. So Providence, if we don't get this order right, we're going to sink as a people. We're going to sink into shame. We're going to sink into moralism. We're going to sink into being so introspective about our Guilt that we don't want to tell anyone about the grace. We don't labor to be forgiven. We labor because we are forgiven. We worship and pray and give and serve and share with others, not to make him smile with us, but because he already is smiling upon us. Everything he's told us to do is done out of overflow 
instead of trying to fill the cup up. His grace is for you. He has redeemed us. He has forgiven us. One last one. Christ has united us in himself. He has united us in himself. Notice what it says in verse 9 and 10. He says, let me find it. Making known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. You and I, we're forced to process all the information that we see and feel and hear in the world through a lens of brokenness. Sometimes we wonder what God is doing. We know that he's active. We read that he's active. We see good things that are happening and we attribute it to God. And all of a sudden, the very next day, there's an earthquake that kills hundreds of people in Mexico. We think, God, what's happening in the world? What's happening in our life? What's happening in my kids' lives? What's happening? What are you, what are you doing in the world? And, and sometimes what we're given is the lens where we know he's doing amazing things, but we get to see under the loom and not over the loom. We get to see behind the cross stitch, but we don't get to see the front side. The front side, there's, there's a pattern, there's beauty, there's intentionality. The back side, there's also a pattern, there's beauty. Or, well, no, there's not. There's, there's great intentionality, but there's not as much beauty. We don't, we, like it's hard to see what that's supposed to look like on the other side. If you were to lay down under a loom and look up, you would see all kinds of knots and frays. There would be somebody, a designer up top who's looking and, and who's organizing everything so that it's beautiful. But the Bible says that we all are laying on the ground. We're looking up at God's, what he's doing in the world. And all we can see, we see some beauty. We see some intentionality. We see some order. We're supposed to trust that there is all these things. But sometimes all we can look at is the phrase and the knots and the strings that are just kind of hanging around. And, but what? Paul does for us here in this text, in this, these little two verses, is he says, let me give you a sneak preview of when God is going to turn the loom and you get to see what he's been up to all this time. He says he's making known to us the mystery. We look at it. Mystery in the Bible does not mean spooky. It means uninventable. You would never in your wildest imaginations be able to tell someone accurately what's on the top of that loom, how beautiful it is, how intentional, how amazing it is, what God is doing. And what he's saying here is this. Let me give you a sneak preview to really like the core of what he's doing. It's this. He stacks up all of these phrases. He says he's making known to us the mystery of his will. That will is according to his purpose. He has a predetermined purpose. He's working this will out, which he set forth in Christ, meaning Christ is the answer to how it's going to be pulled off as a plan for the fullness of time. There is a time when it will be done. There is a moment literally where God says, it is now time to see what I'm doing, what I've been doing forever since creation. You now get to see it. And then he tells us what it is. He goes, it's to unite all things in him. The word unite, if you remember the word redemption, or my tire is fixed, or I was rescued, it implies something, doesn't it? The fact that he's going to unite means that we are now divided. Unite means we were lots of different places and we all come to the same place. 
And this is his plan. We were created for Jesus. We sinned against Jesus. So Jesus came in order to bring us back to himself. And so Providence, if we have been united to Jesus and if we are participating in uniting others to Jesus, then we are living for the point of life. You are birdying the whole of life if you are connected to Jesus. It is the point. It is the goal. It is what he's doing. It's to bring people back into a right relationship with him. And so as we close, let me give you an application here for our life, and it's this. Let's orient our lives around the supremacy of Christ. Christ is the point. Do you know why you have the gifts that you have? It's because of Jesus. And if your gifts are not aligned to glorifying Jesus, they're pointed in the wrong direction. Do you know why you have time on the earth? It's to glorify Jesus. And if your time is not united, if your calendar, if Jesus is over here and your calendar is here and your calendar is constantly pulling you away from Jesus, your time is misdirected on the earth. God gave us resources. Every one of those resources is tied directly to glorifying Jesus. He is the point So if those resources are drawing us away from Jesus, they are pointed in the wrong direction. The relationships in your life, your friendships, all of those relationships are intended to point to Jesus. He's the point of that relationship. And if that relationship is void of Jesus, then that relationship is void of the purpose of life. Jesus is the glue to everything. He's the point to everything. So how do we orient our life? We get so distracted. We start going on all these paths. I'm like, wait a minute. This has nothing to do with Jesus. So if it's not your pattern, the first thing I would encourage is that you would devote to God the first few moments of every day as an expression that you want to know God and you want to know God's will. Matthew 6.33, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So what does it look like to devote the first few moments of your day to Jesus? Well, I want to tell you what I do. Let me just tell tell you this. This is not the way. It's a way. I don't have the right way. It's just a way. However you choose to do it, I, I would encourage that it needs to include praying and it needs to include the Bible. But, but to come to him... It's interesting that when I wake up every morning, my mind is racing. I don't know why, it just is. I wake up, I stand up, and all of a sudden, my mind, it's like, it just races. All, it just goes all over the place. And sometimes I'm like, just stop. Just stop thinking for a second. And so the first thing I have to do every day is I have to affirm his excellency, and I have to submit to his reign. And I say, God, I just... All the directions in my heart wants to pull me right now. I just say no. I desire and I just affirm verbally to you that I gladly submit to you as my Lord. How do you want me to spend this day? And it's interesting that 
next thing that happens is I begin to read his word. I begin to pray over what I read. I begin to pray for other people. I pray for you. And let me just tell you this, that if what you're going to find when you open up the Bible and start studying and reading it for yourself, you're going to find a God who is so passionate about the worship of his son that he calls people to be on mission with him. See, the reason that we care about missions is because we care about worship. If people in Africa were worshiping Jesus, we wouldn't go tell them about Jesus. The problem is, is they don't know about Jesus. They don't know about his redemption. They don't know about his forgiveness. They don't know that he's the point of life. So he tells us to go and tell them. When you open up the Bible, you find a God who, who tells us that he's given all of our talents and all of our treasures and all of our time in order to glorify Jesus. And you find a risen Christ who is so supreme that will change the question at the end of your day from Did I get it all done to did I honor Jesus with what I did? You find in Jesus the point of life. And you find that he is the point of life. You start orienting your life. You start changing the degrees of your business, of your marriage, of your friendships, of how you spend your time. And and suddenly Jesus becomes more a part of your life. So let me just encourage you as a people. Jesus wants you to be near him. There's a million things tomorrow morning that will pull you away from him. And if you separate from Jesus, it's amazing what happens. You feel like you need to start running in life instead of walking in life. We always accelerate when we get lost. What you'll find is you're going to spend weeks and months and maybe even years traveling really fast down the wrong road. And so save yourself the hassle. Wake up in the morning and say, God, my life is yours. I want to know you. I want to know your will. I want every part of my day today to ultimately be to glorify you. Providence, we, if we do that, if you do that, one day you will stand before him and you will see that he is the point of life. And you'll hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant. Good words for a faithful people. So we're going to sing here in a minute, but before we do, let me pray, okay? Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you that these kinds of truths, they stir us to want to sing. They stir us to want to go tell other people what you've made available. And so I pray, God, that you would use these moments as we prepare, God, to walk back out these doors to help us to respond in faith to what you've made available. Would you help us to respond with joy, in our singing now. And as we give to you, we pray that what is given, that it would be leveraged and mobilized for the glory of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.